0: So as we look, continuing uh, in the story of Joseph, the question um, to pose before us this morning would be uh, to consider uh, something that we've all probably considered uh, in many various ways and throughout various seasons of our life, is the reality that we suffer. And uh, this suffering, uh, we've said, is really likened to Joseph being put in that pit or in that prison. And what we're going to find now uh, particularly this morning, is the, the few times perhaps in life that are sweet moments in which kind of like sights on a gun that they align, right? Where the reality of your life and the eternal purposes of God sometimes match for a second, and you're able to see clearly in multiple perspectives that they, they ellipse or overlap so that you can say, oh, I at least know something of why God had brought this into my life or that position in my life or season in my life happened. Why I suffered here, I suffered here for that reason there. You can see the cause and effect. God doesn't always give us that. And we're we're definitely sure that uh, the whole scheme of our life is not able to be fully interpreted uh, because we are so finite. But sometimes... And maybe you've had that experience where you've been able to see your suffering and be able to relate at least some of the reasons for it. And those are really lifting times to know the purposes, the mind behind God. Um, So in here, in Genesis 42, we find uh, Joseph being able to connect two dots that have been the main theme of his whole life. And it comes here now as he finds his brothers coming to Egypt, where he's able To have joy to know that the Lord has been doing something all along. It's one thing to just have to always be uh, saying that and trusting in that. And then sometimes God even shows you. We'll see Joseph find this in Genesis 42. Joseph is uh, the highest in Egypt at this time. And he had dreamt that the uh, interpreted the dream that the famine was to come. And the famine did come. We find Joseph's father up north from Egypt saying this. When Jacob, Joseph's father, learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt because the famine was severe, he said to his sons, "'Why do you look at one another?' And he said, "'Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt.'" Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his other brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over all the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. And Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where did you come from, he said. They said to him, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, You are spies, and you've come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. And he said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We are servants of twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest in this day with your father is this day with his father, our father. And one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is, as I say to you, your spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you, and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely your spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined while you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain uh, for the famine in your household and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth... We are guilty concerning our brother. And that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen, so now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. And he turned away and wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes, and Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, and to replace every man's money in his sack, and to give them provision for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys and their grain and departed. And as one of them opened a sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money, the mouth of the sack. And he said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is at the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. Translation could say their hearts went out from them. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father was in the land of Canaan, and they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We've never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day in our father, in the la- with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your household, and go away. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And... When they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. You have these moments in your life where you feel like all this has just come against you. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring them back with you. Put him in my hand, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, and his final verdict is, My son shall not go down with you. For his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with the sorrow of Shul." And that is the conclusion that Jacob makes as he has put in the place of decision between determining if he should give away his youngest son, Benjamin, to the choppy, tumultuous waters of God's providence outside of his domain in Canaan, and also knowing that now That those waters outside of his immediate control or domain are very deep, and that his other son Simeon will most likely never return from Egypt. What we find in these prophetic stories is God relaying to you and me the nature of our faith. Why is it that he is not here? Why is it that we speak of Jesus, but we do not see Jesus? Why were you born? Why is gravity? Why are the stars in the sky and the created world? Why anything, really? Because we aren't God. We are in this thing that He had made. And he has positioned the world and our lives and the very beginning of our consciousness, small young children, into our maturity in which we become more aware and look around and consider our suffering and present reality. All with such a limited aspect of knowledge. We are actually very, very unknowledgeable about so many things. Hebrews 11 says that faith, our trust, is the assurance of things hoped for, That is, the confidence of things that we have not seen. That's what faith is, defined by Scripture. The assurance of things hoped for. And confidence, strong resolution toward things we have no actual sight knowledge of. Which isn't the only form of knowledge. Sight knowledge is not all knowledge, but it sure is nice when you can get it. Pharaoh's faith was like this. Think of the story. Pharaoh has the dream. Two sevens. Seven fat cows or seven years of wheat that are healthy. And then seven years of sleek, thin cows that aren't healthy. And seven wheat that is thin and not healthy. Seven years of plenty. Seven years of famine. The dream comes to him. Joseph speaks a prophetic word and interprets the dream. And then what happens? Pharaoh internally is absolutely convinced that he's right. He has a confidence of the things unseen, an assurance of things hoped for, things into the future. Now, realize this, as we see the story here, that the famine has come, as Joseph had said, exactly as he had said. If Pharaoh did not believe Joseph's prophetic word from God, they all would have died. There's no way to test for seven years. That is, you can't doubt God's word for seven years and then think, by the eighth year, oh no, I've read my farmer's almanac and it looks like there's famine this year. It's too late now, you see. The seven years of plenty that he could have had to store grain, if he waits to see the famine coming, you're dead. Do you see why we have to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ? Because the second you see him, apart from believing the gospel, you're dead. No one will stand in his presence apart from his grace. You can't just believe that maybe someday there will be the day of the Lord. Maybe someday there will be the day of reckoning. Maybe someday there will be the day of the throne judgment. Now is the time of the gospel. Now is the time of plenty. Believe upon the Lord Jesus now because there will be a day in which all things will be accounted for. And that day will be too late. The storehouses of the grace of Jesus Christ are to be stored up now by holding upon Jesus Christ in faith now. And you have to believe now because into the future it will be too late at that moment. There will be a day in which the famine will be accounted and there will be nothing else to say. The nature of faith Even down to watching your weather patterns on the local news. You have to plan for the things and believe what forecast has come to you. It's the nature of our existence. We can never be or know the future. So now is the day of salvation. This is the gospel that Paul gives. This is the real... Like, if you really just read the book of Acts, and if you were to just pull out every time the apostles preach, every time the apostles open their mouth and preach the gospel, and you were to compile that on a piece of paper and then compare everything to the way even our modern evangelical church preaches the gospel, and look at them both. You'd be shocked. How did they actually preach the gospel? Paul goes to Mars Hill, the Areopagus, in Acts 17, he says, in him we live and move and have our being. Right now he is sustaining, upholding you, with bread and light and food and air. But there will be a day... In which that will not be the case. The times of ignorance, Paul says to them, God has overlooked. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has fixed a day in which he would judge the world in righteousness. By a man he is appointed and he has given assurance, that is that confidence to all this. Why? Because he raised him from the dead. This resurrected man will have the authority, the right to judge all other men because he was made in an image like us, tempted in every way like us, but with perfect righteousness. This is the man who gets to sit on the throne and look at all other men in his resurrected glorious state and judge them. Judge them. He has fixed that day. Therefore, therefore, he has fixed a day for all now to repent. Prepare for that day of wrath, that day of famine, the day of misfortune, the day of turmoil or storm or struggle. But you can't wait to see it. You've got to believe the word of God that is coming now at this moment and throughout all the world. There's a prophetic word that if it's rejected, it's rejected too late. The beautiful grace that God gave to Egypt is that they knew this word and were able to store up and actually became a blessing to all the other nations and was able to feed them. In John 6, in the Gospel of John, he introduces Jesus to us as the man who feeds 5,000 men alone and women and children. Jesus finds a crowd that likes him because of his bread, And they started following him and he said, do not work for the food that perishes, but work for the food that lasts for everlasting life. And they said, well, what should we do to work these works of God? How can we get this kind of bread? And he said, believe on him who he sent. That's the work of God. Believe. The word goes out, there is a place to find bread. Okay? Okay. In seven years, there will be a famine, okay? Where do I get the bread? Store it up now, okay? Where is it? Jesus Christ. The work of God is to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I am the bread of life who came down from heaven. I am that bread. See, in him we live and move and have all our being. Not in our bread we live and move and have all our being. Or in our water we live and move and have all our being. Or in our oxygen we live and move and have all our being. In Him, in the real sense, we live and move and have all our being. If He were to revoke that power. If He were to take away His causality. We would be nothing. Ecclesiastes 12 says, The Spirit of God is given to man. The Spirit of God returns to God. And then the man dies. And returns to the soil. See... We are sustained by him. There could be a moment in which there would be a famine of our being. A famine of his subsisting us in our own existence. And if he were to revoke that at any moment, that would be the day. That would be the day of the Lord. The day of famine. So all this is tying in to how we see Jacob. Hearing uh, this word. He hears that there's bread in Egypt. Goes to his sons and says, have you not heard? Why are we sitting around here starving? Literally starving. It's hard to consider a famine. It's so far from our mind in the modern world. But it is a famine. Like going to die famine. Not I wish I had ramen noodles famine. Like nothing in the fridge famine. He says particularly, go down and buy grain. And he says why? that we may not die, but live. There is bread in Egypt, bread of life. We need to live. And Joseph is there now as the governor. And the brothers come, and they do something they never would have done for their brother. They bowed their faces to the earth. Joseph recognized them, and they didn't recognize him. And as they bowed their faces to the earth, he remembered his dream. We're told. That all the stars and the moon would bow to him. All the sheaves of wheat of his brothers would bow to him. Sheaves of wheat bowing. Here they are coming for his wheat, his bread. And what happens there at that moment is something remarkable for us in our life. How can you be gracious with people? These are the brothers who destroyed him. What Joseph will do to them is love them. He knows the beginning from the end. Romans 12, we're told to love our enemies. Why? Because you've been given the gospel. He can see his enemies, his brothers, who sought to kill him. And he will love them in the next few minutes. Why? Because he's remembered his dream. He knows the purpose. His suffering had a purpose for the glory of God and the good of men. How did Jesus take on that cross? It was not because he liked crosses. It was for the glory of his Father and for your own good. How could you ever suffer in this life and be wronged by anyone? And love your enemies, your enemies. Those who you cannot mince their words or twist what they're saying. They're taking you out of context. They're disparaging your character. They're trying to harm you for no other reason than it harms you. That's what an enemy is. Not someone you just disagree with. Someone who actually is out for you because they don't like you and you are called to love those people how could you do that because you've been given the gospel you've been given the ultimate interpreter of all dreams of all sources of suffering that your suffering will always work out for good and you are meant to work out love for your enemies if he didn't have that dream If he didn't know this was all going to God's plan, how else, good gracious, how else would you treat your brothers who came to you this way? Tried to kill you your small child. Throw you in a pit and sell you for slavery. I mean, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And so he says, you are spies, and they neglect it. And this is just, you're going to find this, as it's hilarious as they say, we are honest men. He knows them. They don't recognize him. You forgot your sins 2 weeks ago. And Jesus is not. He knows you. And you don't know yourself. Speaking in the throne of Jesus Christ, all men will try to say, "We are honest men." We are good. The great throne. It is not just, see, this throne that Joseph sits on in Egypt. He says particularly, I will keep you. Send one of your brothers away to go get this young brother you speak of. Because he's questioning them. He knows them. How's your father? Is there another brother? How's he doing? He's getting into his family's life when they don't even know. He's investigating them. He's judging them. He's going into the uh, cracks and crevices of all of their life to be under the microscope of this judgment is nerving. It's it's uncomfortable to be cross-examined by even a human, let alone God. But Joseph knows them more than just any random person. And he's asking and pushing. And they're divulging information. They don't want to. They're saying particularly, well, you know, we have, uh, we're we're 10 of us. We're 12 total. Uh, We're all the brothers of one man. Um, Imagine the pressure. He's pushing them. The most powerful man in Egypt is pushing them for information. And they have to give. And they're being accused and they say, Well, we did have one very small younger brother, but he's at home with our father, and, and there was another brother who we had who was no more. Why would they be giving all this? Joseph is pushing them. They are feeling some precursor, a prolepsis to the throne judgment of God, in which all the crevices of your life will be pressed and examined. It's uncomfortable. And then he said, so that you be tested or that your words be verified. Therefore, go, get your brother and the rest of you stay. And they stayed three days in prison. Then he released them. And he said, I fear God. I don't want to keep you all here. If uh, your father is at home starving, how about one of you stay? Now, this is the most beautiful thing to see. If you know yourself, if I know myself this verse. Outwardly, we are honest men. We're told, they said to one another, they said to one another privately, in truth, we are guilty. See, they are interpreting this throne of Joseph as more than just that. It's God's judgment upon their life. They say, In truth, we're told, among themselves, they're whispering now. We are guilty concerning our brother. We saw his distress, the distress of his soul, and how he begged us, and we did not listen. This is why this distress is coming upon us. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. Do you see the trial of their life? This particular judgment upon them? It's more than that to them. It's not just this Egyptian... They're interpreting it as God coming down upon them. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever been so bereft and broken that it felt as though God was biting you, that God was pushing you, poking you, examining you? It's hard in the middle of the depths of terrible circumstances and experiences in this life to not immediately internalize that as these men did They departed. Now when Joseph heard that, he turned away and wept. And he came back with bags of grain. And he gave them all. He took the brother Simeon and told them to all go away and loaded their donkeys and gave them extra provision for the journey. They come home and relay the story to their father. And the problem actually gets worse. Because when they come home, we're told that they opened up their bags and inside was all the money that they were supposed to be paying for this food. And we're told particularly that great fear came upon them. Now their brothers locked away in Egypt. They have taken all this food and they are potentially being framed or potentially being uh, pigeonholed into being thieves as well. So if they were to return to achieve their brother... With their younger brother, Benjamin, they could also be brought up on theft, as opposed to being spies, if spies doesn't work. They know they are tricky men, they're evil men, they know what is being done to them, and they are particularly afraid. Jacob responds. He says this particularly, you have bereaved me of my children, Joseph, and now Simeon. Now you would have Benjamin, now you would have Benjamin. And all this, here it is, Jacob internalizes. All the time we have grief. What has he do? All this has come upon me. So the brothers are saying, it is because of our sin against Joseph that God has brought this upon us. And then Jacob is told that now he's lost another son and his youngest is, is required before the judgment throne. And all this has come upon him. The internalizing of this tragedy is on him now. We find that Jacob is riddled with the fear of death. Why? All this has come upon me. My son cannot go down with you. Why? For his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should come upon him, you will bring down my gray hair into Sheol. Sheol is that metaphorical place That sometimes is referred to a literal pit that you can dig six feet deep to bury someone. Or the spiritual realm of the underworld, the place of the dead departed, the shadowy place in the Old Testament. Jacob is saying, if my youngest son goes with you, I will die in grief. And the last, the gray hairs of my head, the old age of my years will end in Sheol under the grief and the despair of yet another son in death. Have you ever had these frames? As we see the story, have you ever had these frames about you? These frames of mind? There's two of them. There is the frame of mind that we have with Jacob. He is framed in by death. And the frame of mind for the brothers is condemnation. They both interpret this, the same event, in different ways. Jacob is framed in by death. The brothers are framed in the frame of mind of condemnation. Afraid of death, particularly, framed in by fear that the outer edges, the final corners of your life, the portrait of your life would actually be hemmed in and surrounded by the fatefulness of your own fatality. All men everywhere live in the fear of death. We're told that through the Gospels, we're told that through the book of Romans, that all men have this fear of death. And the fear of death is closely related to the condemnation for sin. That this frames our life. That we interpret things that happen in us. And we see the oldness of our years. The grayness of our head. And we have to remember we are hemmed in and framed in death. And so Jacob cannot get out of this. He was a broken man. There are people I have met. And I do not know how I have been spared this at least yet. But have been experienced and touched up against such grief. That they have never been the same again. When he lost his son Joseph, he changed. Everything's interpreted in that. All this has come upon me. No, Benjamin cannot go. Why? Because Joseph is dead. And Joseph has been dead for years. And I'm not over it yet, you see. His whole life is framed in this fear of death. He's a broken man. And he knows he's going to die if he has any more grief in his life. He will die of sorrow. This Joseph, this tragedy is upon him. But what if Joseph isn't dead? Do you hear the gospel in that? What if Jesus is actually alive? a man of the same likeness as you and I has conquered the grave. What if he broke through the frame? What if he broke through the bonding box of death? What if Joseph is still alive and Jacob is grieving the death of a live man? That would change everything, wouldn't it? Everything would change if Jesus were alive. What if the interpretations of Isaiah 24 were true? That there will be a Messiah to come who will swallow up death forever and wipe away all tears from all faces. What if he will break this bond? What if the dreams of the interpretation of Isaiah 55 come true? That there will be a time when everyone who is thirsty and everyone who is hungry can come and have no money and come and buy and eat without money and without price. That there is a bread for life that costs nothing, that you can eat and never die. What if Isaiah saw something? What if it's not just poetry? What if it's not just dreams? What if they were just as veritable and actually true as Joseph's interpretation? That this is the case. That this theme through all the continents and geographies of the written oracles of Scripture have laced together with this one theme. That it was all for Jesus to come, to die, to resurrect, and create a new heavens and a new earth. So that there would be no more frames of mind to be under the condemnation of death. The brothers have this same thing. They are bound. They are framed of mine under condemnation. Confined inside their own condemnation. They are burdened by their own condemnation. We're told that then they found out that they were under this condemnation. That their hearts failed them. The Psalms... Other places that the heart turns like wax. It melts within itself. The strength, the vitality of your soul. The desire to live is gone. Your own power or or corporal um, existence is evacuated from you. Their hearts failed them. Because of their just understanding of the condemnation that was blaying upon their conscience. See, as Christians, we never really say, well, of course, I know Jesus Christ has forgiven me. As we said before, that is one thing to say, I know that there is no condemnation for me. It's another thing to whisper when you feel that you deserve condemnation. Do you notice what the brothers did? We are honest men. Before Joseph of the throne, we are honest men, we're not spies. Turn among themselves. In truth, it is this brother's blood coming back for us. What has God done to us? The beauty of all this is Joseph knows Hebrew. Joseph standing, the, the, the court, you have to understand what's going on. Joseph is maybe at the customs of this um, inter, international portal. And he's standing there on a high platform. And there are interpreters below him. From various people from all across the country looking for bread. And they speak various languages. And so he with the authority standing here has various interpreters below him. And as people would come up, they would mediate and say such and such. And Joseph would give a decree. And then the mediators would say, the interpreters would say such and such. And the men would go wrong in their business. Joseph standing there at his judgment position. His brothers come in, we're honest men, interpreter, hey, they say they're honest. They turn around one another. See, when you whisper the truth of your own conscience, what is God doing to us? This is our brother's blood coming upon us. His own condemnation is for us. And they don't realize that Joseph happens to know Hebrew fairly well. The language of whatever they were speaking, because he grew up in their house, and he knows their language. He knows their conscience. He knows their mind. And what does he do when he hears it? He turns away weeping, knowing that they are they are the evil ones. they are the ones that hurt him, and he comes back with bags of bread. Grace, food to eat that cost nothing. Their very own condemnation. They open up those bags and they see that money and they think he is framing us. He is going to keep our brother Simeon down there. He's framing us for theft. He put that money back so that if we ever come back, we're accused as thieves. But what was he really doing? Framing them in grace, bread, That you cannot buy. No money. It is yours. See, the reality of our grace in Jesus Christ is that our judge is the victim of our violent sins. See, it is our sins that put Jesus Christ on that cross. It is our sins that sent Him to the death of pit. And when He came out of that pit, when He is freed and liberated in all His glory and splendor, and all authority in heaven and earth, and all the nations are coming to Him, and we would think, now is the time to project. Now is the time to say we're honest. Now is the time to say we are righteous. And inside our own conscience think, I am in a lot of trouble. I am in a lot of trouble for my sins. But do you see... As Joseph might know Hebrew, Jesus knows your mind. He knows your conscience and he knows your thoughts and he loves you even more. He turns around in weeping and brings out bags of bread for your life. What a gospel that is, you see. What an image, what a portal, what a prophetic oracle it is to say that this plan was from the beginning. That he would always do it this way. That he hears the troubled mind. He returns back with grace that we would buy without money. And without price. There's a man named William Cowper. In closing with this. As an illustration to say. Do not overly interpret your life. All the suffering and the things that Joseph suffered. He was to sacrifice, to serve, that he would save life. William Cowper was a famous poet of the 18th century. He wrote many great pieces of literature and poetry. And he actually was internationally famous from England, but spoken about in the States. Benjamin Franklin spoke really highly of him, and all his stuff was published and put throughout all the world. That didn't satisfy him though, of course, because see, William Cowper, he was a man who knew about these pits. And some people, and you don't know why, but some people get into very deep pits and some people's lives have many of them. If you, and I guarantee some of you are those people, My gospel, my hope for you is to understand to not overly interpret your life. These pits. In school, when he was very young, his life already took a turn as he was bullied severely. Westminster School in London. He started to have bad thoughts as he was treated poorly as a small child. He tried to court many women and none of the fathers permitted him to be married. His mother died when he was very young. His father died and passed away when he was 25. All seven of his siblings died. His last brother, who remained with him a good portion of his life, died. His closest friend. And it broke him. He went insane. When he was 32... He was in an insane asylum. And he read Romans 3. Where it said. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And he was never the same again. He still suffered after that. In 1773 he had a very dark dream of all things as we speak about Joseph and Pharaoh and all his dreams and interpretation of dreams and the meaning of your life and why is there suffering, he had a dream that was terrible. It sent him into great depression. He attempted suicide multiple times in his life. But that same year that he wrote this amazing hymn called God Moves in Mysterious Ways, that same year he had this dream in 1773 with depression and suicide humming behind his mind. He wrote, God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his works in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. The frame. Jesus Christ is Lord. We put him in a pit and he interprets his own life. Thank you very much. And he rose from that pit and He is alive with all authority and power in heaven and earth. And we were crucified with him now live with him And we have no condemnation for those who have been crucified in Christ. And we consider the present sufferings of this age not worthy to be compared to the glory to be revealed at the perimeters of our life. Therefore we know that all things must work together for our good. For those who love him are called according to his purpose. That's the only interpretation that matters. And until that day is consummated, we might want to sing this hymn. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. And it will be a glorious day. When all God's people have bread. Dear Father God. You are your own interpreter. We scan your works in vain. We are unable to see the beginning from the end. But we do know the end. And the end is. You are good and merciful and glorious. Lord we praise you. We thank you. We bow our hearts before you. Lord Jesus Christ, we ask as we would praise you now, that from the depths of our souls we would give you our praise and that you would be pleased with it. Amen.